And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn once again to the book of Job. And if you want to get a jump start on things, you could actually turn to Job chapter 9, because that's uh, one of the passages. This is one of those sermons. Uh, I forget who it was, a preacher that I heard years ago that he said, you need your flipping Bibles with you because we're going to flip from page to page to page. So we're going to look at a variety of different passages in the book of Job this morning. The word faith, the concept of faith, is something that we, we use a lot, and in a good way. I mean, we talk about keeping the faith. I've seen some people sign their cards or their letters and with, you know, faith and love and then their name. We've used acrostics that help us define faith. I've used one. I've given it to you. One that I learned years ago, forsaking all, I trust him. That's a nice tool. It helps us. Philosophers have written about a leap of faith that someone takes to move into the unknown. We've applauded the faith of those who take great risks for God, and we especially applaud that faith when it pays off, when it, we see the results. Sometimes we've questioned the faith of others who may not have been so courageous. Today, we're going to sing songs about faith, and faith being you know, uh, walking by faith. And all of that is good. We need to celebrate the idea of faith. And we need to always remember that the object of our faith is only our triune God. Someone once told me faith is only as good as its object. And the object of our faith is our triune God. But sometimes... Sometimes in our efforts to explain or define or describe or to encourage faith, we run the risk of making it look easy. We run the risk of making it look like this pristine journey that's just always wonderful. I'm fully aware, uh, being a person of faith, I'm fully aware that our exercise of faith can be messier than any of us would really like to admit. No one, not even our heroes or heroines in the Bible, exercise their faith in a perfect way. Faith is messy. Faith can be confusing. Faith can be a struggle. Now, before you get the pitchforks out, let me remind you of two things. First of all, James does tell us in the New Testament that there are good things that come out of the testing of our faith in James 1.5. But note carefully that if you read James 1.5 and following, you'll see that those things come after the test of faith. Uh, you will, he lets his readers know you will face trials. And when you look back upon those trials, when you're on the other side of them, you can look back and see that, oh, yeah, I got through that. Oh, yeah, my faith carried me through. And yet in the middle of it, faith can be hard. Today we're going to look again at Job. 
Job was a man of faith. Job was a man whose faith was put to an unreal test. A test that you wouldn't even wish on your worst enemy. It was a test that shook him to the core of his being. It was a test that resulted in physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual agony. It was a test that strained his marriage relationship and his human friendships. It was a test that literally left him in a heap, wishing he was never born. And what I want to do today is I want to trace a faith journey in Job and trace his struggle. You don't have to answer these questions. But I think they're good questions to think about time to time. Why do you obey the Bible? Why do you follow God's standards? See, I think most of us are closer to Job's faith struggles than we want to admit. It's easy, it's so easy to fall into the trap of theology that kind of Job had when you think, you know, I'm doing my best to adhere to God. I'm doing my best to be here to godly standards. Uh, in fact, I, I've been doing so good doing following God that, that God kind of owes me a little bit for my goodness. Uh, in fact, when I'm doing my best for God and, and life just seems to be mundane, there's, you know, I don't see any reward, I, I don't see any response, I, I don't see any blessings, I'm just kind of living day in and day out and I'm not seeing anything magnificent happen in my life. Sometimes we can wonder, can't we? Does God really know I'm here? Does God really see me? Uh, and sometimes if the response is, I'm living my life and I'm doing well and I'm trying to obey God the best I can, and then I get these trials, these tests, these bad things come into my life, I can begin to think, is God really fair? I don't deserve this. You see, both of those responses come from a fact that I do believe God is there. But maybe I just need to give God a little nudge, a little reminder so he can see how much I do for him. We have time again rehearsed the basic standards of Job several times. I'm not going to turn to every passage. I just want to remind you. We see in this man Job, a man that was concerned for the hearts of people. In Job 1.5, he offers sacrifices to his children for his children, uh, hoping that maybe in their hearts they may not have denied God. So he wants to protect them. If you would turn to Job 6.10, you don't have to. I'm just saying if you would someday. Job 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 10, he steadfastly continues in the face of his friends and opposition. He does not deny God. In fact, in Job 16.5, his standard was to encourage other people. In Job 29, 11 to 17, he talks about how he cares for the needy and the oppressed, and he takes care of them. And we see three descriptions in Job 31. He's a man of fairness, 31.13. He's a man of purity, 31.14. He's a man of generosity, 31.17. And yet with all of that, Job struggled. And I hope today we can take comfort in the fact that Job struggled. Because what we will see this morning is that Job 
was real. He didn't sugarcoat things. He wasn't perfect. He was real. Because faith sometimes is hard, and sometimes it's messy. And sometimes our faith can drift into thinking that somehow we can make a demand of God and he'll sit up and listen. I was first introduced to this concept many years ago by a professor who trained me in counseling who walked us through this. And so I want to walk you through Job's faith that tended to fade into demandingness. And then we'll see what we can learn from it. So you're in, hopefully, Job chapter 9. Go to verse 32 and listen to these words. Speaking of God, Job says, He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands now with me, I cannot. I put it this way. Faith fades to demanding when I think I can square off with God. As it so happens, when we struggle, our confusion and our struggle is mingled with truth and confusion. Job speaks truth about God. He says, He's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Job is saying, I get it. God's not like me. God's above me. I, I, I couldn't face him in a court of law. I couldn't debate him the way things stand now. It wouldn't be a fair fight. It wouldn't be a fair debate. But if I had a mediator, now we'll talk more about that phrase next week. If I had a mediator, then maybe we could have a conversation. And Job is reflecting on this fact because I believe in his heart he feels he has a case before God. He feels he has a chance to help God see that this should not be happening to him. It's kind of like if I knew the right people, I could have a chance to point out to God that maybe he's missed it on this one. Can you relate to that? I can't. I can't tell you how many times I have, in frustration, said, God, I really don't have a clue what you're doing here. I don't have an idea what you're doing. I don't even know how to get out of this one. There are times when you and I face circumstances, and I think we wonder, don't we? Maybe God took a little cat nap. Maybe he just kind of, he was looking over here when things were happening over here. Oh, we're careful not to blame God directly, but sometimes we talk about, well, if I could just wave a magic wand, or if I could get a do-over, or if I could just turn back the clock and know what, take what I know now and take it back then, I would do things differently. We walk a fine line between exercising faith and trusting God and yet thinking that maybe we have a case to call him to respond to. For Job, as the trial goes on, you'll see a little bit of increase of this sense of, I got something to say to you, God. Turn just over one chapter to chapter 10. Just down here, kind of continuing on, verses 1 through 7. 
Listen to these words. I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. Do you get what he's saying there? Since I, right now, I don't even care about my life, so I'm just going to speak out. I'm going to say it straight. Whatever happens, happens. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a strong man that you must search out my faults and probe after my sin? Though you know I'm not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hands. Much to the chagrin of Job's three friends, he maintains his innocence. And, and, and what I take from this is the way I would summarize this is simply this way. Faith fades to demanding when I think I have a right to know. No one can blame Job. He is innocent. We know that. Go back and read chapter 1. We know Job is innocent. But here he takes the idea of mediation to the next level. He challenges God to show him the charges. Remember, in many ways, Job is operating on that same theological foundation as his friends. I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing to deserve this. And yet, here God has brought this into my life. And so he's expressing this idea that God needs to justify his actions for me. It's human. It's natural to want to know the why. It's natural. If I can understand why something is happening, then maybe I can initiate the corrective action to make it stop or go away. So Job's frustration begins to not boil over, but it's simmering pretty good right now. And he says, hey, look at these questions of God. Let me reiterate them. Do you enjoy this? That's kind of what he's saying there. Does it please you to oppress me? God, do you enjoy this? God, why are you not focusing on the evil people? You're focusing on me. You're bringing, there's, there are people out there that are far worse than I am. And somehow you're just bringing this to me. God, do you not have anything better to do with your time to, than to look for my hidden faults? You know I'm innocent, don't you, God? You know I can't even do anything about this, right? God, I don't get you. You created me and now you want to smash me. What is up? And before you get upset with Job, realize something here that I think helps, at least helped me understand the messy nature of faith. He is still talking to God. He hasn't decided God isn't there. So it's not a perfect faith. It's by no means a docile faith. It's real. It's raw. It's the stuff of one who's struggling. Turn over to chapter 13. In, in chapter 13, in several verses that we'll look at, we're going to find this. Faith fades to a demanding 
when I think God is keeping something from me. We'll start at verse 3. Well, actually, we'll start at verse 1 and end at verse 3 here. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. This is his response to uh, one of his friends, to his friend Zophar. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. I'm not going to worry about you anymore, Zophar. I need to take my case to God. 15b, he goes on, chapter five, or verse 15. Uh, I'll pick it up in 13. Keep silent, let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Go to verse 20. Only grant me these two things, God, then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and you make me reap the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. Job says, I have a case. I have an argument for the God Almighty. And now he gets to the point saying, it like in verse 3, I, I want to speak to him and argue my case. In other words, I think I can hold my own in a debate with God right now. I think I could. I think I have a case. And the longer you and I go through a trial, the more we think we have earned the right to be heard and to defend ourselves. And while there is still a shred of faith that moves us to God, there's an also this slippery slope that thinks somehow God might be more like us than we imagine. We get that unique mixture of realities in verse 15. On the one hand, what an amazing statement. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Nothing is going to keep me from clinging to my hope in God. And, and we're going to look at that again next week in more detail. But look what immediately follows. And I will surely defend my ways to his face. Wow. I don't think any other statement in Job captures the tension in his heart more than that. And the tension in our hearts when we live in difficult times. God, I am clinging to you for dear life. I am holding on to you because you all I've got. But you better believe i got a few things to say about this. And in His grace, God gives us space to struggle and to lash out. That's what the whole concept, and we looked at it two year, almost two years ago now, the whole concept of lament is. It's this idea of I am in agony and I'm struggling for God and I'm crying out and God gives us the space to do that. That is a God of grace. That is a God of mercy. When we get to verse 20 of Job 13, it starts to be a bit of bargaining. 
God, I just need two things from you. <laughs> you know, most genies give you three wishes. God, I'm only asking two. I, I just need two things of you, God. Two things. Have you ever bargained with God? Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? I have. <laughs> They've all been pretty silly when I look back on it. You know, God, if you would just allow me to inherit a million dollars, then I would do so much for missions. And Well, there would be a set of pink golf clubs in the mix, but that would be for ministry purposes, you know. And, you know, God, if you would just... We bargain with God in silly ways. God, if you just do this, I'll serve you forever. God, if, if you just do this... And eventually, some people have seen God do what they ask, and they have served him, and other, they just kind of drift away. Job says, God, just two things, just two things, that's all I want. One, stop it. Just stop doing this to me. Withdraw your hand. Stop frightening me. And two, call me. Call me, God. Summon me. I want to speak to you. You see the theme here? I have something you need to hear, God. You're missing the point. I have something you need to hear. I think you really want to hear what I've got to say, God, so give me a call. Summon me. The uh, version of Scripture known as the message renders verses 23 to 27 this way. Secondly, address me directly so I can answer you, or, or let me speak, and then you answer me. How many sins have been charged against me? Show me the list. How bad is it? Why do you stay hidden and silent? Why treat me like I'm your enemy? Why kick me around like an old tin can? Why beat a dead horse? You compile a long list of mean things about me, even hold me accountable for the sins of my youth. You hobble me so I can't move about. You watch every move I make and brand me as a dangerous character. Those are harsh words. Job is wanting to know why, and he's beginning to fear that maybe what he is experiencing is the true character of God and his demanding this, I think, comes from a place of fear, saying, maybe God's not the God I thought he was. Maybe God's not the good God I thought he was. And that's a frightening concept to Job. And it's a dangerous concept. And it leads to what I would call the culmination of Job's demandingness. We'll see it in chapter 23. Ultimately, we do live in this unique tension between faith and demandingness. Turn with me just to Job chapter 23. Look at the first seven verses. This is a response to Eliphaz's final speech. If you'll notice, if you go through the book of Job, his friend's speeches start out pretty big and bold and flowery. But as Job keeps responding to them, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. In fact, the last one, Zophar, doesn't even have a final response. Job says, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. 
I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There, there the upright can establish their innocence before him. And there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But now look at verse 8. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him, but he knows the way I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. That faith and demanding. I don't know where he is, but I know he's at work. I know he sees me. I wish I could be. You know what? I want to go to his house. I want to go knock on his door and say, let's have this out. Job says he, has, he believes he has a case to be made. I'm going to go to God's home. I'm going to make my case. I have my list of things that I need him to hear. And I know once God has heard my case, he's going to drop the charges and I'm going to come out innocent because the judge of the universe is going to acquit me of all charges. That is really gutsy. Job has reached the point where he's convinced that he has a case God can't refute. But his problem is he can't find God. You see, God is everywhere, and yet we have to find him by faith. God always knows where Job is. Job doesn't think he can find God. And I think that is the case when we struggle. I think when we struggle, we wonder, where is God now? And I think that struggle is best made by C.S. Lewis when he wrote of his own grief. And there's a lot of history there, but at one, by the time he was like 60 years old, C.S. Lewis married uh, Joy Davidman and uh, Joy Davidman Gresham. And uh, that marriage allowed her to, to stay in England and to continue to raise her son Shortly at several years later, she contracts cancer and she dies. And in response to all of that, C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed. And in that, he says this. He's talking about, he asked the question, where's God? And he says, but go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? And if you and I are truly honest with ourselves and with God, we have felt that way. So what do we do? How do we survive this struggle? How do we live in the tension between faith and demandingness without feeling guilty or empty or desperate? Is there a way to come to God in our struggles so that he will listen and give us relief? Let me just give you three things to walk away with. And, and, and they're not going to solve all of your questions because I think the questions are just where we live. The first one is simply this, and I've already touched on it. 
in a unique way, are demanding is an expression of faith. You don't make demands of a God who's not there. It's a reliance on the grace of God who allows you to struggle. If you get my weekly emails that are called Preparing for This Sunday, one of the songs that I put in the playlist this week is a song from a a group called 10th Avenue North. The title of the song is The Struggle. And, And in the chorus, it simply says this, Hallelujah, we are free to struggle. We are not struggling to be free. One of the things that the cross enables us to do, one of the things that our reliance on Jesus enables us to do, one of the benefits of being forgiven is we can struggle and God allows it. He is our heavenly Father. He is Abba Father. He's Daddy. He gets it. He gets it when we struggle. He gets it when we don't have answers. Remember, as I said last week, his own son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is freedom in the struggle. And God may choose to be silent when we struggle so that we can get to the point where we're ready to listen. In that same book, later on, C.S. Lewis refers to the door that he had talked about that is slammed and bolted and double bolted. And he writes this. And so, perhaps with God, I have gradually come to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like a drowning person who can't be helped because they clutch and grab. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hoped to hear. You see, sometimes, and I think it's the case with Job, and I think what you're going to find, spoiler alert, is when God does speak, he just kind of, he comes to Job out of the thunderstorm. He comes to him in the power and basically says, Job, you're not God. There's one God and you're not him. And you need to realize I've got a bigger plan in mind. But until Job has gotten all of his words out, until he's totally spent, he's not ready to hear the truth. And sometimes God lets us struggle so we're totally spent and then we're ready to listen. And that does, that's not, that's not going to make a poster. That's not going to make a bumper sticker. That's not going to be a nice little etched glass on your wall somewhere. It's just the hard realities. There are times where you and I simply need to sit in silence before God and be present in our struggle. And I would add, if you are the friend of someone going through the struggle, maybe you just need the one to be there present and give them space. Had Job's friends continued to stay silent, we might not have the book of Job because they would have worked it out together. But when they spoke and thought they needed to correct him and shape him and mold him, and they tried to do God's work and they didn't do it well.
A second thing to be aware of. Absolutely no one goes through difficulties perfectly. As I stated a couple of times, faith is messy. Faith is an up and down existence. Sometimes my faith is strong and I can, I can do anything. You know, I can, I can move mountains. And sometimes my faith is, is half a mustard seed and I can't do anything. I don't feel like I can get up and go. Faith is an up and down existence. I reference another book. It's entitled The Kingdom Life. The subtitle is A Practical Theology of Discipleship and Spiritual Formation. Uh, there were 14 contributors to this particular book, each one taking a chapter, some chapters co-written. One of those contributors is a woman by the name of Peggy Reynoso. Her chapter is entitled Spiritual Suffering or Spiritual Formation Through Suffering. Her story is briefly this. She and her family spent 20 years in Mexico as missionaries. And after 20 years, they returned to the States to pursue other ministry. And shortly after they get to the States, her husband is diagnosed with a rare form of prostate cancer and was told by the doctors, you just might as well make the most of the time you have left. There's nothing we can do. Well, by God's grace, they actually saw his healing hand and her husband was healed from this cancer. But as his health was returning, their adult son began to slip into a severe struggle with depression and schizophrenia and eventually separated from his wife and moved in with his parents. And at the time she was writing her chapter, he had been living with them in this state of depression and mental illness for nine years. She said it was just such a dark journey. And in the middle of that, their daughter, their teenage daughter, began to have some kind of a mysterious illness. And nobody could begin to, they couldn't even diagnose it. And her daughter worked hard to try to live around the illness and try to live with it and try to live a a normal life. Peggy then herself has heart problems. Her husband falls off a ladder and uses, loses uh, full use of his shoulder. And eventually that daughter who struggled at the age of 19 was, was killed in a car accident. So Peggy Reynoso knows of that which she speaks when she writes this. It is in lamenting and processing our pain with God that we experience healing and hope in the midst of adversity. Victory in suffering will not always look victorious. It will likely involve an ongoing process of hurting and at times questioning God. Faith is messy. Faith is sometimes expressed in a demandingness of God. In His grace, God gives us the space to struggle. And what I learn again and again and again from Job is it is okay to wrestle with the messy nature of my faith as I cling to God for dear life and don't know the outcome. And that leads me to a third conclusion. Even when you can't sense God's presence, He is still there. We each have a tendency to live our lives and go through routines and do good things and treat people well and eh, love our neighbors fairly well as ourselves. And 
doing all the stuff we need to do to be good with God. But what do we do when the reality of a fallen and broken world rears its ugly head? What do we do when we hit that wall of pain and adversity? I think we, like Job, wonder, what did I do to deserve that? Job isn't perfect, but he's trying to bring his struggle directly to God. And in that, I see his faith. I'm reminded of another woman who is distraught, desperate, possibly going to be a single mom in a, in a time and an era where that was totally not looked upon well, feeling abandoned, didn't even have the wherewithal to cry out to God. But God found her, and God comforted her, and God gave her a promise that she would have a son, and that her son would grow up to be a great nation. And Hagar, Sarah's servant, Abraham, who was pregnant by Abraham, after hearing God cried this, you are the God who sees me. I want you to take that reality with you today. The reality that we celebrated earlier, that in Christ we are forgiven because He willingly gave of His life on the cross for our sins. And because we are forgiven, because we are accepted through Christ, we are free to struggle as we strive to follow God and make sense of sometimes what is a senseless life. I encourage you today, put your faith, as messy as it sometimes is, in the God who sees. And I can promise you this based on the word of God. He will walk with you even when you can't feel him there. Father, I'm so glad your word is real. I'm so glad that sometimes you give us the freedom just to wrestle and struggle. I pray, Lord, that as a result of your word today, we would be okay with a messy faith, because you are. That we would be okay with not having all the answers, because we know you do. We know that in our heads. May we live that in our hearts and know that when we need the answer, you'll give it to us. And may we just remember to cling to you day in and day out, even when we don't hear directly from you. Remind us that you are the God who sees me. In Jesus' name, amen.